You're listening to the audio from Tuesday Night Class at CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We hope this teaching helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. We are carrying on with our story of Judges, and uh, good to see everybody here. People are logging on. You guys are here, and we're just going to dive in and keep going. I hope you've uh, done your reading tonight. Tonight, we're going to be carrying on with Judges chapter 5 and Judges chapter 6. And uh, if you've been taking my classes before, you'll know the person I'm going to hand this over to is uh, my dear friend, Sharon Lauder. Sharon is uh, a teacher in uh, Port Coquitlam, been teaching there for a long time and has been teaching here for a long time. And uh, generally, whenever I teach a class, Sharon does at least one of the sessions, which is awesome. And I'm really looking forward to tonight. I gave her uh probably one of the toughest texts so i appreciate uh, her taking that on that's one of the benefits of assigning uh and so i'm going to hand things over to uh sharon so let me pray and we'll go from here lord thank you for your grace thank you for technology when it works we pray that it will work and uh we commit tonight to you and go before us in all that we do in jesus name amen all right okay Sorry, I have to move this down so they can see me. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So yeah, welcome everybody. Tonight we're going to look at chapters four and five in the book of Judges, and uh, we're going to meet Barak, who is a hero of the faith, and Deborah, who is both a judge and a prophet. But of course, the story is really about the God who is with us in chaos. So there's two chapters, and chapter four is a recount narrative, so it it tells us what happens. But chapter five is a song, so it's a beautiful uh, change in the book of Judges that we can see here. Okay, and we'll see how they are both affected by, um, how the change in that uh, adds to the story. Um, David, I'm just having trouble moving the mouse. Okay. I'm going to probably come up and do the same thing. So this here? Oh, it's there we go. There you go. Okay. <laughs> okay. So again, we saw, we see Israel lapsing into apostasy. And this time they're handed over for judgment for 20 years. And it's kind of sad when you read the text. It's like after Ehud died, they fall into apostasy. So we do see this cycle. We see this of sin and repentance. But really, as David's pointed out to you, it's a cycle downward. Okay. And um, so again, much of the material is taken from Barry Webb's Judge and, Judges and Ruth, God in Chaos. And he wrote about four chapters on it. So um, yeah, there's a lot to go through, but uh, we'll see what we can get through. Okay, so uh, now this time, the, they were under the oppressive foot of Jabin, who is king of Canaan. Now Jabin is a royal title, much like Pharaoh is a title. Um, he would have dominated the whole of the Canaan Valley from Hazor, which is a fortified city. Um, in Naphtali, and it's close to the Israel-Lebanon border, and you can actually still visit that region and see the ruins. So he had actually a series of alliances with other rulers and other major cities, Um, but actually he ruled by an enforcer, who was Sisera, his general. Okay, so you see sometimes, this is quite interesting, this is something available, social biblia, so, and it's somebody who's taken portions of the Bible, and they have changed it and created it so it looks like social media. Uh, me? Yeah, I can talk louder. Yeah, no, sorry, I'm not amplified. <laughs> yeah, sure, no, I can. Sure. And so, but look at this picture, or if you look on the screen, um, that actually you will see later, that picture of Sisera. Okay. So basically, what he's famous for is having 900 iron chariots. So remember back in Judges, if you do have your Bible with you, in Judges 1.19, why were the Israelites unable to take the plains? They were able to take possession of other parts of Canaan, but not the plains. Do you remember why? Exactly. It was because of the chariots. They couldn't take over because of that. Now, Think about this. What are some of the advantages to having chariots? Sorry? 
Yeah, actually, it's like armor, absolutely. And you can see, this is from another period that you see on the PowerPoint. That's a different, that's an Etruscan chariot. Um, and that one is from a later period, but yeah, it is, it's like armor. Another advantage though, as well is um, basically, apparently at the time, what they would do with the chariot is you would be able to go back and you would be able to go forward and you would really harass the foot soldiers because they could move so quickly. Of course, it's also led by a very powerful animal, which would have another effect. But really, it was also very psychological. No matter how big and how brawny your soldiers were, they had a height advantage over you being in the chariot above and having the animal too. So that was very difficult. And we're seeing um, a change in the time where you're seeing this new, basically, military technology that they're able to use. Now, Sisera is not um, uh, a Canaanite name. It actually probably came from somewhere else. Um, but the alliance basically united the south and the north. So it united everyone above and between. So Israel was left between these two, and it kind of squashed them into the middle. Okay. So again, so we see in verse 4 that the Israelites are cruelly oppressed for 20 years. So they cried out to the Lord. Okay. So then we see we have Deborah. Now, there are other women who are mentioned as prophetesses and served as prophets, some well, some served very poorly. Um, but uh, Deborah was prophesying, not only prophesying, but she's also leading and judging disputes. And God spoke through her to summon and commission Barak. Okay, so here you see her, Barak. So God raised up a deliverer, and he is ranked with the heroes of the faith in the book of Hebrews. Okay, so this is what she says. She says, he sa she sent for Barak, son of Aboim, from Kadesh in Naphtali, and said to him, the Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, go, take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun, and lead them up to Tabor. I will lead Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River, and give him into your hands. So this is what she says. So when you look at this, what do you see in the prophecy? Things. So have a look at, talk to maybe somebody around you. What do you see that God has given to um, Barak in this command? What he's done is, first of all, he's given him a mandate. Okay, he's given a mandate. It means he's given him a command, but with authority to carry it out. He's given him a clear plan. He's given him support, and he's given him an outcome. Outcome. Now, just to give you a bit of background, depending on the translation you used, um, they would have said, go, gather your men at Mount Tabor. So there are some commentators who think that Barak was actually a leader of volunteer soldiers in Natali. So he would have been a man of some influence, and he would have been, um, had some militia experience. Um, but he was still would have been a man with these other volunteers facing professional soldiers. Okay, um, and Cicero would still have his experience as a leader, and they would also have this technological advantage. Okay, mm -hmm. so first of all, we'll just go through it bit by bit. So the first thing, just to give you a picture of what Mount Tabor looks like, you can see it there. So Barak and his mentor to assemble on the mountain, and the battle would assumedly take place in the Jezreel Valley that you see below. So Cicero would approach from the west, from another city. So what would be the advantages for soldiers to be up on a mountaintop to start out from, if you're the Israelite soldiers? What is the advantage you think would be being up there? Absolutely, you can't use a chariot on a mountain. What else? You can see everything. You can see them coming, absolutely. They have that advantage. What are the disadvantages, though? Yeah, yeah. You think that'd be a disadvantage, but where were they actually supposed to go? So the problem is, is that once they're up there though, they have to descend at some point, they can come down and then they have to, they're supposed to draw him towards the river Kishon. So they'd have to go down, then their advantage dies down and then the advantage for the other side is gained, okay? Then again, they're also foot soldiers, they're against 900 char chariots and eventually they'd have to, um, and basically, then they would have to engage them where they'd never really been successful before. Okay, when we think about that. So we look at the support, but they would get support. So if Barak drew his men to Mount Tabor, God would draw Sisera and the forces to the battle down at the river Kishon. Then God would give Sisera into, um, into Barak's hands. 
Now, Kishan, at that point at Mount Tabor, is really uh, basically a stream, okay? So, um, when we look at Judges 4.8, so this is what Barak gets. He gets this instruction from God. He gets it through a prophet and a judge, this woman. But Barak says to her, if you go with me, I'll go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. So Deborah agrees, but she says to him that ultimately the honor is going to go to a, wo a woman. Okay. Now, why do you think that Barak responded that way? And how do you feel about that? Do you think it's possibly a result of um, humility? Do you think it may be out of re regard for Deborah as a prophetess? There's that. There's some that's saying that she wanted to have her at her side. Absolutely. That she comes along because the, maybe the anointing is on her. And does he really believe that this is on him? No. I don't know. Yeah, I think that's why I was wondering too. I think he yeah, might be terrified. No. Absolutely. He tells that if she comes, the God is with her, then the God is with him. But if she doesn't come, the God is not with him. I think Naira has seen something. Yeah. Yeah, no, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, don't. I thought. Sorry, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> if the, she comes with him, he, will, he feels that God is with him. If she doesn't come, the God is not with him. He doesn't believe that God is with him if Deborah comes or doesn't come. Exactly. And that if she is still with him, that the, if she doesn't come with him, the prophesying itself will stop. That she has to be physically with him for it to continue. That is one interpretation, absolutely. Um, or that it's simply a lack of faith after all they've been through and that's all he's seen. But Deborah agrees, but predicts ultimately the honor is going to go to a woman. Okay, so we can continue. Okay, so the outcome. So if you're reading chapter four, the action comes really quickly. So basically, um, Barak, Deborah, and the Israelites assemble at the Mount at Ta Mount Tabor, like they were told to. Sisera finds this out through somebody very interesting, through Heber the Kenite. And instead of just finding he found out along the way, this man is mentioned. Okay, so his charioteers assemble at the river Kishon. So at this point, Deborah tells Barak, go, this is the day that the Lord delivers him into your hands. So Barak and the men descend the mountain, they engage the enemy where they've always lost before, and they win. The enemy breaks ranks, they flee, but they're cut down as they retreat. Even as you notice in the text, it says they're fleeing in chariots. But Sisera, he abandons his chariot and he escapes on foot. Okay. And this is where we meet a new person in the story. This is Jael. Okay. So Jael flees to the encampment where he saw, where of Heber the Kenite, and he meets his wife. Now, he, um, Heber's wife hides him, Jael. She gives him something to drink, and she covers him up. Then when he falls asleep, she drives a tent peg into his head so hard, I think it says in the NIV, that it goes right into the ground. Right? So this is a shocking way to die. Now, Jael... Deborah had predicted a woman would take the honor, and really, Jael takes it from three different people. First of all, Sisera is shamed by not only is he retreated and he's abandoned his men and he's also abandoned his chariot, but he's died in such a way at the hands of a woman who outwitted him. Okay? Barak is shamed because although he could have had the honor of killing or taking away the biggest threat to his community, he lost it out. Lost out. He didn't have the possibility of doing that because Jael took it from him. And this is also the beginning of the end of Jabin as the king of Canaan. The Israelites grow stronger and stronger, and slowly they end up destroying him. So it's interesting. We have Barak. Barak is the one who is, we've just seen, he is a flawed hero, but he's actually on the list of the heroes of faith in Hebrews 11, 32 to 35 in that section. Why do you think he's there, even after all we've said about him? Why is his name there? So that's what, if we want to do a breakout now, if you could take time to look at that and figure out why do you think he would be there? Okay, because he did list the honor. What happened? Okay. Is that okay? Yeah. Yeah. 
Okay, so we're going to do a breakout. And so the question is, why does Barak show up as on the Hebrew Hall of Fame? Okay, if I could bring us all back in. Okay, so he is definitely on the list of the heroes of the faith. And uh, it's, this is divine word for us, so we can't argue he shouldn't be there. What is it? Why is he there, though? And there's a good reason. It's given in 32 to 34, and he fits in. Why is he there? Yeah. So Larry said that if you look down on uh, verse 34, whose weakness was turned to strength and who became powerful and battle and routed foreign armies. So that's one thing to keep in mind is when we look up at somebody, is it somebody we could also identify with? Okay. He is someone. He wasn't perfect, but he did allow himself to be used. Um, his weakness did turn to strengths. When we think of things, like we think of, first of all, we have to understand he was called and he was commissioned by God. So that is God's call. And that's an honor. And that's a great thing. He won a major victory. And that will bring 40 years of peace. Okay. He was a flawed servant of God. But then so was Moses. So was David. So was Solomon. So am I. So are you. So isn't that inspiring to us? Okay. At uh, the beginning, he did have what, you know, the author, what Webb calls a cautious, qualified faith. Can you identify with that? Can you identify with Barak? When you look back over your life of faith, no matter how long it's been, no, ever, no matter how short it's been. So maybe that's a good person for people like me to have on the list of heroes. Now, one thing to keep in mind also, when, she, when Deborah came on the mountain and she said, go, the second time he went, the Israelites would have had to cross 12 miles of open terrain in order to meet the army of chariots, the whole time seeing that ahead of them. That, what would that take? Yeah, it would take guts. It would take courage. It would take faith. Absolutely. Now, is it possible that Barak's faith matured under testing? And is that possible that we could do the same? Because one question I ask myself is why isn't Deborah on the list of heroes of the faith? But I think one important thing is that Deborah in this story, and it's not, I'm not saying that as if it's just a narrative, it's just something made up, is that Deborah's personality stays the same through. She is absolutely faithful the whole time. And, but for me, if I have to look on my life of faith, who do I have to look up to? I would have to most identify with Barack. And I think that's one thing we see through people, through Moses, through David, that we are all, um, we are all flawed people, but God can use us if we allow him to. Okay. So do you find that, it's funny, Natalia and I are doing a study. You find something challenging? Do you find it convicting? Do you find it comforting? And I hope you do about that. Okay. Okay. We're going to look at the two women in the main part of the story that we meet in chapters four. I know we, David and I, we were looking at some of the images that I have on it. And it was really interesting. One thing that's come up because a question through, and David's kind of mentions, how do we portray people in the book of Judges to children when they see it? So this is the kind of the look of Deborah and Jael. I don't know if you can see it. Um, King Jamin is mean is written on the sign they're breaking up. So. Yes, you don't see the pegs that she has. Yeah. So I wonder, yeah, because I first actually learned about jail. We're going through the family Bible, looking at the artwork through it. And uh, one of the pictures that I'll show you is the one that is in my family Bible. And, and then I read the story and I remember just being shocked by it. So Deborah, as we learned in chapter four, Deborah's a prophet and she's a judge. Okay. Oops. Uh, so the author points out that Deborah is a prophet along the lines of Samuel, and he does pay her a really nice compliment. He says, he says she was a female Samuel, or rather more accurately, Samuel was a male Deborah since Deborah came first, which is quite nice to say. Um, now he's, yeah. Um, now a prophet is usually under authority. Having two rules like she does is um, unusual. Okay. So much like Moses and much like um let me just go on. So um, if now she's a judge, if Deborah was only dealing with individual conflicts, she would have been at the city gates. But one thing they make clear, she's under a palm, as you see here. And what that would have meant is that she was dealing with the more contentious issues 
in Israel. Okay, so she would have been dealing with it for people coming from many different tribes and communities within Israel. She was a woman of character and of authority, and she operated beyond any kind of tribal allegiance that would have been there. Okay, so, but it's funny, in chapter five, if you read that far, how did she identify herself? She gives one more rule that she talks about. She mentions it a couple of times. She mentions that she's also a mother, so she's playing multiple roles here. Okay, a mother of Israel. Um, in the New Testament, prophet, prophecy is one of the fivefold ministry gifts with apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachings. It is to provide the church with comfort, with edification, and with exhortation. And you see, that's what she did. Okay, and we can see that in various parts of the New Testament. Now, Jael, this is interesting because Deborah had predicted that Jael was going to be that a woman would take honor out of this. And when I first read this, when I was a kid, I thought she was going to get the honor because she was the prophet. She was going along with him and that that's what the prophecy meant. But it is Jael who we see as the one who's described as the one who takes the honor. And then this, this picture here is something that came from the Morgan Illuminated Bible of 1250. And you can see it's the story almost in triptych. Okay, that we see here. So, okay, and also when you read through chapter five, it really slows down. I don't know if you notice that, and almost talks in detail about the way that Jael actually dispatched of Sisera. Um, basically, it, 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 she comes across as one really stone cold killer, but she's identified in the song as the most blessed of women. So that really says something about the violent times they were living in and what Israel probably was able to be able to save, be saved from. Now the Kenites, so this is one piece that we see. Uh, the Kenites uh, were first mentioned in Judges 1.16, if you look back. And historically, they were allied with the tribe of Judah. And that's where they were living at the, uh, in the Negev with the tribe of Judah. But we found out in the text here that Heber is not living anywhere near his family, okay? And so he's not living on his, uh, with his clan. And so he ends up giving on intel about where they are, about the Israelites to Sisera. So this is the picture actually I have in my, I had in my family Bible. And when you see it, it's, um, it's really quite shocking when you think it's almost like Sisera looks like he's quite a bit younger than Jael. And it looks almost like if you took what was out of her hands that she was just looking over someone to make sure they're well. But then you look closer and you see she's got the peg and she's got a hammer. I remember being really shocked at that and then going and reading the story and being even more shocked. So this is another piece of artwork. This is from a church that, uh, and you see it was a mosaic and it's in the early church era. So this is who she is. Now there's two theories about jail about what happened here. The first is, is that it was just real politique, that it was on this like, uh, the end of the Bronze Age, real politique. She saw the change in the political fortunes around her, and so she switched allegiances. Her husband may have been allied, um, allied with Jabin, but that was not gonna happen. She, Jabin was gonna fall in power, so she was gonna take advantage of the situation and do what was best for she and her family. The other one, and this is kind of interesting, is that she was actually honoring the ancestral allegiance between her tribe and the 10 tribes of Israel. Because if you look back in verse in chapter one, what it tells you is that they're actually descendants of Jethro, who is Moses's father-in-law. So that's why they originally allied with Judah. And basically all she was doing was going back to that point. And she was honoring her, either her ancestor or the ancestor of the family she was now allied with in marriage. Okay. And, but you'll notice, like she got the honor. When I was doing this study, I couldn't believe how many famous painters from like Artemisia, Gentileschi, who was the first one, um, through to these, through Northcott, through to this um, piece of artwork here, that she has been amused for so many different artists. And yet I couldn't really find anything for Deborah, couldn't really find very much for Barack. It's amazing. All through the century, she just seems to inspire. She's very compelling for people. Okay? So we're going to look and we're going to stop too and look at the song of Deborah. 
So chapter five is very different in this very, um, very grim read of a book. Suddenly we have a song and this is a hymn of deliverance, which is a natural response in gratitude. And it's great to read because we find out so much more about the context of Israel's victory on the banks of the Kishon. Okay. So this is oral history. Uh, she begins with this thing on that day and the poem dates to about 1200 BC. And this song is actually considered part of the historical rest record of the Middle East. So it's very important. First of all, she did, kind of slows down and in the song, Barack and um, Deborah give us a real good look at the social conditions around in case we'd forgotten and all we'd learned in the book of uh, uh, Judges. So we learned that Israelites, they were squeezed geographically and figuratively by their enemies. It was so dangerous, you'll notice, that she said that she, they abandoned the highways to make their way around furtively and that village life had ceased. They lacked weaponry to defend themselves, while their enemy, as we could see, had superior military technology. I think she says that they didn't even have the swords that they would have needed for the war. Okay? And more importantly, as you read through, within Israel itself, there's disunity, there's broken communities. The sin is both public and it's both private. It's political and it's personal. So you gotta wonder, how can a community defend itself when it's internally divided? And she kind of leaves that there in the song to think about. One important point, what can we take away from this is the idea that we are meant to be community, okay? The Israelites, they were outnumbered and their odds were not in their favor, but they did take up the mandate given to them. And that's the way it is for the church. And that's the way it's going to be till Christ's return. We show up, we get our orders, we stand with our leaders, and we execute what we have to do with excellence. And we leave the outcome up to me, up to, ultimately to God. Okay? So the song celebrates the cooperation between the leadership and the people who volunteer to fight. Can you, can you relate to that? A feeling of unity when you do something with the church, for the church, for God? when he's asked you to do something? If you haven't, then maybe it's something to think about as you serve during this time. Is there a way to serve for you to do? The other thing we learn from this chapter is the Lord is a warrior. And actually she starts back. She doesn't start back with the battle that's happening right there. She goes back to, Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the land of Edom, she goes back into their history. And she told Barak, this is the day that the Lord will deliver Sisera into your hands. Does not the Lord go before you? Okay. How do you feel about God as a warrior? Think about that. Does that sit easy for you as you've spent the last four weeks looking at the book of Judges? We tend to be very comfortable with uh, the Lamb of God as opposed to the Lion of Judah. Yeah, yeah. So one thing to look at that is the Lord is a warrior. But the idea of thinking that our battle is spiritual, the world and the forces that are behind it are hostile to the gospel, and they, but they're beyond our ability to defeat. Only God overcomes the darkness. Um, but when you think about it, the war... The war is already won. The one who won it, won it is with us to face anything else until the end of the age. So that's, that is comforting. Okay. Another point is, sorry, let me get here. Um, God is the Lord of nature. And she harks back when they're singing to what had happened in previous battles too. So how did the Lord vanquish the forces of Sisera and how did he um, vanquish on the um, banks of the Edom? So, one thing to keep in mind is that 
the reference to the heavens and the stars, that would indicate that God is the God over the weather. God is the God over all the elements around us. God is the God of the water that falls, the water that flows. Um, now the Kishan, if you look in the ESV, if you read it in that, it would have been called the torrents of the Kishan as opposed to just the waters of the Kishans. So the idea is that um, even the land rose up, everything, all the elements around rose up in battle on behalf of God's people when they follow him. Um, so what would have happened to the chariots? Well, the great technology on dry open land, but if the Kishon had swallowed the chariots or had risen up, it would have been very much harder for them to, um, to move around. Now, the thing about Barak, his name means lightning. And at the time, if you remember that you learned last week, the Canaanites saw their god Baal. He was known as the Lord of rain and dew. And there's a reason for this. If you go further to the um, southwest, to Egypt, or if you go to the east, you go to Mesopotamia, and you're a farmer, you're trying to raise food for your family, you're not necessarily dependent on the weather. You're dependent on major rivers that have created lines of irrigation to take care of your, your properties. So for them, food security is much less an issue. But for the people of the Canaan, they're completely dependent on the weather for them to be able to stay out of the feast, out of the famine cycle and stay in um, the cycle where they can continue to keep their families healthy. So that's why the Canaanites perceived Baal as the facility God according to the weather. But here, what happened this day is they're defeated by a man named Lightning and his God. So where was their God in the God of chaos? So you see then suddenly they didn't have the psychological advantage they had over Israel at all. And they saw a God who was so powerful that he would move the heavens and the earth in order to save his people. Can you think of other times in the Old Testament where God had used the elements to prove his presence and his power? Sorry? Yeah, stop the sun. Absolutely, we saw that he stopped the sun in battle. Any other time? The Red Sea, absolutely, parting the Red Sea. What was the ten, one of the 10 plagues of Egypt? What did he do to the rivers? Turned them to blood, absolutely. Later on, when it comes to Elijah on the mountain, what were the priests of Baal trying to get happen? They were trying to end what? A drought. Yeah. Exactly. So the, yeah, we can see this. So this is the Lord we have, okay? So God uses the elements to prove his power. But most importantly, here we see here, he is the God of Israel. So in the beginning of the song, you see that Deborah calls him Yahweh of Israel, the one of Sinai. So why do you think Deborah and Barak refer to God that way? So why do you go with that to that language? And the reason is it's the language of the covenant. Okay, and it's a call back to them, goes called back to their history, to the Exodus, and to the making of the covenant between God and Israel on Mount Sinai. Okay, and it also reminds them, let's think back in our history, there's another time when a man and a woman sung praises to God with their community, and that was Moses and Miriam. Okay, so God remains committed to the covenant, we learn through the song, and to his people. And the people needed that callback because by breaking the covenant, that's how they'd ended up where they were. Okay. Now the song, though, it has a note of bitterness. Okay. We can see. Uh, so we listen to it. So, but it, she does talk about the defending forces. If you look at verse 2, verse 13, and verse 15, how are the defending forces described? They're not just called soldiers. There's a couple of words they use. The princes, yes, she calls the soldiers, these volunteer soldiers, princes. That's one word. What's another word they use in verse 13 and verse 15? The nobles. Yeah, she calls the nobles. And in verse 15, they're called the mighty. Okay. So these are the forces that showed up. And we learn in, verse, in chapter 4, she mentions two groups that were there. 
But there's a serious note of bitterness in the song because they also call out the tribes that didn't show up. The clans of Reuben thought about it, but they stayed home. Gilead, Dan, and Asher also, they did not show up. Now they, they mentioned Morose. Morose is probably a town that could have offered support but didn't. And in fact, if you look at verse 23, it singles out the people of Morose and it curses them bitterly. Actually, the Lord, the angel of the Lord does. So according to the text, when you think, when you read it, who is actually betrayed? Who are the tribes that didn't show up? Who did they actually betray? They betrayed the Lord. The Lord. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. So what's the takeaway for us? Is this an easy teaching? Is this a difficult teaching? Is this hard to... Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. So, did they hear what you just said on Zoom? No, they didn't hear that. Okay, so what David's saying is this is the takeaway for us is that we're looking again at Israel's enemy is really their own walking away from God and not following the covenant. And they'll do this, and that's who they, and they end up ultimately portraying God. It's not necessarily about portraying each other. Okay. But we do see that we also look at this as a song, and this is song as response. So do you remember, do you think of other times in Israel's history when their leader sang? Okay, we think of Moses, we think of Miriam. David absolutely was a singer. Any others? Oh, yeah, he wrote all the Psalms. Also, uh, the rescue from exile in Babylon. Okay, and even into the New Testament, the Magnificat is Mary's song. Zechariah sang. On the birth of John the Baptist. Solomon. Solomon said. Oh, yeah, absolutely. What do we do in heaven according to the book of Revelation? We'll sing. Okay. So from the beginnings of the church, the disciples sang the Psalms, and it was a sign of being filled by the Holy Spirit. Out of all the world's religions, apparently only Christianity has congregational singing so central to worship. In Colossians 3.16, we're called to sing songs, hymns, spiritual songs, and with gratitude in our hearts to God. Okay? Now, revivals have been punctuated by a flood of new songs. And even in COVID, we've seen songs like Waymaker, which is written by Sinat, who is a Nigerian singer and performer, and The Blessing in so many different languages. Okay? So song is response. Number one, it's the natural outcome of gratitude for salvation. The central purpose points to God is the primary audience of our worship. Okay? When the people are willingly offer themselves, praise the Lord. It is a song of thanksgiving for God's willing servants, for the leaders and the volunteers. But it also acknowledges that we as humans are weak and we're fallible. And it also acknowledges as a full expression of human emotions, but it's not sentimental, and it's not mawkish. And we can keep the song of Barak and Deborah in mind, but realize when we do, how much more we have to sing in praise to God today because of our salvation in Christ. Okay. Now, there's another woman in the song, and the song, it doesn't kind of end the way we end now. It actually imagines what's going on in the minds of a woman we haven't even known or thought of as existing, and that's Sisera's mother. And you see here is a piece of artwork that was done of her. And so basically at the end, she enters the song and it gives us even more context about um, the mindset of the times, okay? So we look at her and it talks about her. And one thing we know is that she lives in security and luxury and in wealth. So she is behind lattice and what they mean by that is that um, there's women serving her. So she's probably living in a fixed dwelling. She's not judging under a tree like Deborah or living in a tent like Jael. 
Uh, she is no friend of other women. She plays no part of a sisterhood. Now, how does she describe the woman at the end? Um, now, she imagines that her son and his army are conquering. And one translation is wombs, another it's girls. So we see in this, in the times they lived in, the people around in Canaan, they had no qualms about sexual violence and slavery. Okay? And actually, at the end, she even, Deborah even imagines that she appreciates her son's warmongering and pillaging for her own personal gain. So what do we get out of this? We see that living outside of the covenant, it warps the people of God when they leave the covenant, but people outside of the covenant even more so. Okay. And basically, we look at this as the, in the idea that there are two tribes ultimately. And we look at the last verse, verse 31. So it's kind of like the book of Judges. See the world split into two, two groups, like two big tribes. So one is the people outside of the covenant. And at the end of the verse, it's your enemies. And those within the covenant, those who love you, but who we realize when we read, fail God time and time again. So now we, have, we live in the age where we're beyond, we're this side of the book of Judges. So we have Jesus. We have a Savior who died for us and who forgives us. Okay? We have, can be a part of either tribe, depending on how we respond to Jesus and his offer of salvation. God is still faithful. He wants to deliver us. He wants to deliver our friends. He even wants to deliver our enemies out of our sin. And he is the God who loved us while we were still our enemies, his enemies. Okay? So, and then the book ends, and it ends with the land had peace for 40 years. And there we go. And that's the two chapters that we see here. It was awesome. Thank you. Let's, uh, let's look at this. What are some, uh, what are some things that stood out to you in this story? And there's so much in it and we've gone through lots. Um, what stood out to you in this? Powerful women, yes, <laughs> very powerful women. Um, well, yeah, I mean, you get uh, <laughs> jail, you get Deborah. What about Deborah as a as a prophet? Does that strike anybody as a little strange, or okay, well, what do you think of that? Yeah, how did a woman become a prophet and a judge? Hang on, Natalia's got <laughs> yeah, something. Say again, Natalia. So how come a woman became a prophet and a judge and she was not a wealthy woman? Yeah, so how could a woman become a judge and a leader in Israel? Yeah. Because of his faith, her faith. Because of her faith. Because of her faith? Is that Naira? Her, so he yeah. Says, yeah. yeah. For God be. doesn't matter, male or female. Yeah. But it, yeah, Sumi makes a point. In those times, it's very unusual. Yeah. It's very unusual for a woman to be a prophet. In fact, how many prophets do we know in the Old Testament? I thought four. So who, who, who are they? Well, uh, there is... Who, I have oh yeah, you had them listed, yeah. yeah. And, uh, and Noadiah, she's known only because Nehemiah calls her out because she opposes him. Oh, okay. Wow. Yeah. Okay, that's good. Hulda, Miriam, yeah. Hulda, Miriam, Hosea's wife, and um, yeah, and, then and Deborah. And Deborah. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so there's four in the uh, in, in in the entire Old Testament. So, but there's interesting things, David. Uh, in the Bible, doesn't say anything about the people be shocked that Deborah is a prophet. Yeah. There's well, no word. Yeah, of that it, it doesn't. One doesn't say people are shocked that mm -hmm. Deborah is, is, is unusual, kind of is strange. Yeah. And you even get the sense from, uh, as Lori pointed out, that everybody's like, well, yes, she's so well respected mm -hmm. that unless she goes with us, uh, we're not going to win the battle. Yeah, I think it's quite, it's, it's I mean, that's the thing about the Bible is it's, you're going to come across some pretty interesting passages mm -hmm. now i know some there's some arguments that people have made um that it, maybe it was such a strange time in the book of judges that because there's no man to ste step up into that role of the prophet that's why 
Deborah had, but that's reading into the text. I mean, you can, as you say, it, she comes across as a very strong woman right from the get-go. And she obviously has, people are coming to her. It's not like she's going from place to place prophesying at all. People are coming to her and she's judging. So obviously she's a woman of good judgment. Yeah. That God has gifted her with that too. So you got strong, strong women. Kevin, do you got anything to add to that? I just, no, <laughs> it's an I, interesting. I think, I think that God's uh, calling was so obvious that there was no question about uh, God's anointing and hand on her and, um, and the authority that came on her. It was obviously God's choosing. And, um, you know, it wasn't something they could question. Yeah. And she would have proven her prophetic abilities, right? She would have proven it that she was a prophetess. We don't have that information, what she actually prophesied. But she must have uh, been, uh, you know, it would have been proven through time that God's hand was on her to reach this point. I, I'm reading into it, but I would assume that. Yeah, I mean, her role as a prophet was it was actually primarily, it looks like leadership, spiritual leadership for, for, uh, for the people of Israel. Yeah, so she's an interesting character. Um, Lori? Yeah, so what Lori was just saying that, uh, I don't know if you guys heard that, uh, she says all throughout the Bible, there's, um, there's, there's these key women that run right, right through the Bible that, uh, you know, you go from, um, from uh, Tamar, Rahab, Hannah, um, and, and I mean, and you got Ruth, you can, you, and, and you keep going, and even to, to Mary, to Elizabeth, and, and don't miss out the, also the fact that the, that the witnesses to the resurrection, the first witnesses were women. Um, in a Greco-Roman world where women's testimony was not even seen as legal in the Greco-Roman world, God in his grace has women as a witnesses to Jesus's resurrection. And, uh, and the other thing is, is, is if you read Paul's letters, you'll notice how many women he mentions in his letters. Now, in, in a typical letter, he, he will mention more men than women, but he'll mention a lot of women. And what seems to suggest is that women, uh, and I've studied this a little bit in the early church in the first few centuries, women made up most of the, the church in the, in the Greco-Roman world, which makes sense. <laughs> When you think about the early church, because one of the activities that the early church did was to go door to door and pick up babies that had been discarded and thrown out to die or like left to in exposure to die. It was the early church that came along and picked them up and took care of them and fed them. They're going to grow up with a very strong view of who Jesus is. Right. And uh, so I, I think that's really important because sometimes I've heard this, and you've probably heard this. Um, I heard people say, you know, the Bible is very misogynistic, very anti-women. Um, and I remember Rick Watts, who's a very well-known New Testament scholar. He says, make no mistake. He says, uh, there's no movement that has done more for women than, than, than Christianity. Uh, and, and, and it runs, as I say, in, such a, uh, in the ancient Near East, in such a patriarchal society, to have such strong women... In, in such a strange setting in the book of Judges is, is, is quite remarkable. Yeah. What else stands out to you in this story? Uh, David, can I say something? Yeah. yeah. Uh, for me, it was Jael, if I say write her name. Uh, see, there's just one sentence that they say she, she got the pin and hammer and did that way. Normal, a housewife can't write away, do such a thing in this that's a short time and decide about that one for me shows she was a warrior she know how to kill she perhaps she had the experience before because it's really weird you just imagine uh, how exactly without any noise the best way to killing that's not right the way comes up on you and you'll be able to killing because killing someone is not simple at all <laughs> in my idea <laughs> No, because I'll take your word for that, Naira. But uh, <laughs> but you're no, right. I mean, that's I mean, the, the way she... I put myself instead of her. How could I do that one if I didn't have that experience? If I didn't have that courage and strong, yeah, yeah, that's the yeah. uh, way. Really, she was a warrior. 
She lived well, in she a tent. She probably killed like, a couple of people before. That would be, okay. I think, the same thing, that her life would have been somewhat vulnerable. When you think about Hebert, he's not living with his family. And you got to wonder why that's happening, why he's in a different part of the country mm. and why he is allied with the king when they're allied to a totally different tribe. Mm -hmm. So they're out there. And she, I think, has to make the decision what's best for her people. And yeah, she obviously knows what she's doing now. Right? I totally agree with you. And you can tell in the tale and that especially as it slows down to say what she did, but also kind of the flourish. She doesn't say, oh, I killed him when... Um, Basically, Barak comes to try and find him. He comes upon the camp. And she says, come, I'll show you. If you look at the translation, I, I'll show you where the man is. And then she shows her handiwork. It isn't like she said, I killed him. Let me tell you. It's, it's almost theatrical. And it's almost like um, these are people who are very used to bloodshed and very used to a violent world around them. And I think maybe in the West, in what's well, to say in the North here, we don't know that world, but we don't have to travel very far to be in that world. Yeah. yeah. David, there's a question for you from Monica. Monica said, Pastor Dave, you mentioned a few weeks ago that we should look at the judges more like warlords. Was Deborah considered a general slash warrior? Oh. So that's a question to you from Monica. Yeah, well, she... I'm not sure. I'm not sure if she would be considered. Yeah, if you what time, do you think? Yeah, if you time, um, the writer Webb, yeah. he looks at it, he says she's more like Samuel in yeah. the sense that she was not, it was not her primary role to be a warrior, but when she had to, she stepped up. But one thing we talked about, David, was that there was no hesitation about her going with him to the battlefield. And when you think about back then, it's not like if, if everything turned the, the wrong way, that they would have said, okay, little lady, you can just go home now. That's not what would have happened to her at all. Yeah. And so she probably knew what the job, I, I think, like my, like the, the, I would say with the, the rapidity with which she responded, okay, yes, we're going, but this is what's going to happen, and went off, that she knew that was a part of the life of being a judge. Yeah. I, yeah, I would say and maybe it had never happened before, but yeah. I think she was totally prepared to go with them because she knew the prophecy and it's. Yeah. I know. Yeah. I, I would say she's more of a, um, I don't mean this in, in the wrong sense, it, like a, the, a political leader. Yeah. Like she's more of a leader over, over Israel and not so much a warlord. If anything, I think jail, um, because jail yeah. is a substitute to Barack. It should have been Barack that would yeah. kill Cicero, but. But because of his hesitation, it was a woman. So I think in, in, in many ways, and Naira, you pointed this out, uh, Natalia as well, that the way she acts and the way she thinks, like she has to calculate a lot of things in a very short period of time, find the weapon, not hesitate, not like have a shaking hand, you know, like where's this temple, right? Um, and so she has to make this decision. So in many ways, she personifies, she would personify the, the, the warrior mindset that we're talking about how when you think of judges think of a warlord i think she's a substitute warlord in that sense yeah, yeah. where, where deborah is probably more of a political leader she's the hand and deborah is the mind huh. yeah that's right Interesting. <laughs> one's a hammer and one no uh yeah <laughs> okay what else comes out of this what else uh, what's that they're both obedient to god yeah I like um, what Sharon was saying about, um, and, and, and this has really helped me because I've always struggled reading the book of Hebrews and seeing the list of the heroes. I'm like, really? <laughs> Some of these, the people who are on the list, I'm like, I don't really see them as heroes. I mean, they, they weren't that great. And they, uh, you know, next week we look at Gideon. Oh yeah, my goodness. Gideon's on the list. Yeah, so I have to unpack that one next week. But um, what's really helpful is that trajectory of faith. And, and even, even these little microcosms of expressions of faith that seem to be what the author of Hebrews is getting at, yeah. right? And so you have Barak, who's nervous. But in the end, 
he, he steps up. When, when push comes to shove, he's obedient unto God. Um, it takes him a while to get there, and there's still consequences to his hesitation. And yet he grows in his faith to the point where he's obedient, and he's part of the, and he, he responds in song as well. Um, so that idea of, of these episodes of faith in their stories as being what the author of Hebrews is getting at has really helped me understand Hebrews 11 a little bit more because yeah. I've always struggled with, with that. Anybody want to make a comment on that? Any thoughts on that? In real or in cyberspace? Well, there's a lot in the story. There's a lot in the story of, uh, of Deborah and Barak, and it's a very violent story. And it's, it's the book of Judges, which is very violent. Now, I'd like to say to you, it gets so much better. <laughs> it gets less violent. It doesn't. Uh, it, it gets pretty bad as, as we're making our way through. But I'll tell you, I was... Um, I was I was working on um, on Gideon last week, and uh, there is so much in these pages that speak into leadership in the church today. Um, you know, in terms of well, and, and it speaks of leadership or the failure of leadership, right? And I think you see that in in the story of Barak and Deborah and Jael. Um, you know, pictures of of flawed leaders, but also you know showing faith at the right time as well. Cool. Any thoughts, questions, comments? Hey, Pastor Dave. Yes, Jeremy. With reference to the violence, and I'm not trying to defend the violence per se, but in the first week, we're talking about certain tribes or, sorry, certain people in the land of Canaan or certain tribes, certain cities were left, as in spared from the violence of the conquest of Canaan to allow the later generations to be proven in battle. So... Is the early violence in Judges a bad thing? Yeah, um, good. And I think when we're talking about the violence, it's... It looks like I'm the only West, one moving here. Western, Can anybody else hear me? What's that? Sorry. Oh, you're frozen. Okay. Jeremy's kind of broken up when he's speaking. Oh, okay. I'll repeat. I'll repeat the question. Sorry. Uh, Jeremy's asking the question, he's talking about how in the early um, chapters in Judges, the question was, um, you know, God left some of the, um, some of the uh, settlements of the Canaanites as a test uh, for this next generation to see whether or not they would step up in the same way Joshua did. And then later on, we were looking at, it's not just a test, but it's also a judgment against Israel for their idolatry. And so you get a lot of violence and Jeremy's asking, well, is that necessarily a bad thing if that was part of the test or maybe even part of the judgment? And I think one thing we have to realize is that the Old Testament well, and the New Testament, there's a lot of violence in it. And it's difficult for us today because we're not used to, especially in the West, we don't like the idea of violence. In fact, the world that we live in is becoming increasingly less violent. I don't know if you know that. You wouldn't know that from watching the news. You think, oh, it's, it's every year the amount of violence is decreasing in the world. And um, so we look at that and so we, and we look at these stories and they're so, they, 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 they jar us. They certainly jar us. But I would argue that most, and Sharon, you're touching on this, most of human history has been very, very violent. Wherever you find men, there has been violence. Lots of it. I'm, stud I'm, I'm teaching... Uh, teaching church history, but I've been making my way through the history of the West and oh my goodness, the, the amount of violence is just ridiculous. But we live in, a, in an age where 
that shocks us, but we have to realize that this is part of human history. Um, and that there is, the, and the consequence of sin and the consequence of idolatry is violence. It is violence. It's violence towards yourself. It's violence towards your neighbor. Um, and what's going on also within the story of Judges, the Canaanites, um, and, and we've talked about this over the years. I know uh, Ivan has talked about this when he teaches on this. If you look at the practices of the Canaanites, they were just incredibly dark and violent and evil. And so this is a world that the Bible takes place in. This is the history um, where God calls his people. He does it in the raw material of history, and there's a lot of violence. And up until probably recent decades, that has been the lot of this world, right? For those of you who have, could remember, or maybe, you, like I remember um, talking to World War I vets and World War II vets. My grandfather was World War II vet about the violence of World War II. I mean, and we just, we don't realize just how violent human history is. And so this shocks us, but it's actually part of a sad story since the fall, right? Well, on that happy note, <laughs> as you leave today, just remember the world's violent. <laughs> it's becoming less violent, actually. Yeah, which is it's quite, quite remarkable. Um, there's a lot to think about. You get that stat that it's less violent. Yeah, that's again the same question. To, what is the uh, every year? There's um, there's reports. There's uh, global reports done on the amount of murders in cities, uh, the amount of wars, um, the amount of uh, displaced people, refugees. And so there's a whole bunch of criteria that they look at. And every year, especially over the last 30, 30 years, um, the amount of violent deaths has decreased. The amount of wars has decreased. The amount of refugees has actually decreased. Um, children are more likely to serve, like even from the 1980s, if you look at children under the age of five and their survival rate in the global south, as the survival rate has increased, you know, I think over a hundredfold since the 80s. And so in a world of, you know, CNN and Fox News and CBC and every little piece of violence is going to be not only reported, but shown through some screen, some camera that they happen to have. The perception is, is that the world is getting really, really violent. But in reality, the amount of violent crimes is, is decreasing globally. And that's part of the good news that you don't often hear about. That is true. So anyhow, that's a history lesson. Um, but there's another way of the violence. It's not just for your body because they're losing their soul. Uh, there's a lot of things new comes, they change the character and the way the people uh, look into the world. Looks like in the Sweden from the four years old, they teach them, uh, don't believe you, what gender do you have? You can choose your gender. It's not, you have to believe. There's a lot of worse things happening. You know, we just say violence is blood. Ah, that's not good. But there's much, much worse of that when it's happening right now in the world, unfortunately. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I'm not saying, I'm not saying the world's getting better. I'm just saying there's less violence. <laughs> there's, there's other concerns in the world for sure. Um, there's a lot of destructive things for the soul, as you say, and for the mind um, that is, is part of the world today. Yeah, no, that's good. always Naira, you have a good point. Yeah, that's good. Cool. All right, well, why don't we, uh, wrap up and what i'll do is i'll get uh sharon once you pray i'll have you come over here and pray and then i will stop the recording after you pray let's thank sharon first of all on, on cyberspace and everywhere thank you sharon thank you welcome you're welcome um so father god thank you for walking with me through this thank you for what you've taught me um thank you for the truth is that you write that at some, you've told us that at some point we will dine with the patriarchs. And so I 
Truly, Father, I'm thankful that no matter what time we live in, no matter what goes on, you've given us the hope of salvation. And you've offered that out to our friends, to our families, to ourselves, to our enemies, Father. And that is the hope of the world. So we thank you for that, Father. And Father, whether somebody signs off um, online in Zoom or somebody leaves this church here tonight, I ask that you walk with them into this week and that uh, they can see more of your love and more of your design in their life as they walk through it father ask for safe homecomings tonight and uh for um yeah for us to have a, a good week as we bask in the knowledge of your love and that we live on this time and you've given us this time um to basically to enjoy our life with you and um to look forward to our eternal life together in jesus name i pray amen thanks for participating in this class if you've been engaging in classes online, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.